enjoyed the worship thus far and uh, looking forward to our time in the scriptures together. So uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter number 3, as we've been uh, coming through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings, we're uh, expounding it verse by verse and seeing what the Lord has given to us in this great uh, book. And uh, certainly as I've studied, it has been so rich and uh, so deep and so uh, encouraging to me, and I pray that it has been for you as well, as uh, Paul describes so much about uh, who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. And uh, truly, the grace of God is amazing. Uh, we ought to never uh, grow, uh, grow weary in, in seeing how great it is. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at chapter 3 and verse 1 down through verse number 8. And the title of the message is, The Mystery of the Gospel Revealed. The mystery of the gospel revealed, and this will be a part one to this message, uh, for it will continue on down through verse 13 as the whole passage flows together, uh, but I thought it best to somewhat break it in half for your sake. <laughs> uh, I, you know that I can go nearly an hour just on three verses, so I'm going to uh, try to my best to get through eight in, uh, in a timely fashion, and um, it, it has a certain flow to it. Every text is different in how it breaks down. And uh, I somewhat struggled on how to break down this text and, and, and divide it up so we could get a proper understanding of it. Uh, but I pray that it will be a blessing to you here this morning. So the mystery of the gospel revealed uh, here in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We see a lot of wonderful truth here within this text, and we look at the flow of Paul's thought, and I think that we look at this text and we see somewhat of a diversion from what maybe he was originally going towards. Have we ever been interrupted, maybe in our prayer or in a train of thought? Absolutely. So many things do this, right? Phone rings, the doorbell sounds, the TV's blaring, the kid's screaming, maybe your own thought diverges you into another subject that you were thinking on. One of the key things that Bethany and I have learned that we must teach our kids is not to interrupt us when we're talking. Any other, anybody else know the frustration of being interrupted by the children? And uh, oftentimes Bethany and I will be in deep conversation on a specific thought flow and, and uh, one of the kids will you know, loudly interrupt, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy, and it's, it's usually something that can wait. Uh, usually their interruption is, I'm hungry, or they did this to me, or... Dad, I love you. I'm like, well, I love you too, but now I forgot what I was saying. Uh, that, that's one reason that it's uh, hard to lose our train of thought sometimes. I like to finish my sentence because I forget all about it. 
But what you'll notice with the Apostle Paul is that sometimes in his writing structure, he will be talking about one thing, and you can see he's kind of leaning into something, but then he diverges into another topic and then comes back around. And this is what most commentators on this passage have mentioned, that in verse 1, Paul was about to lead into uh, the prayer that you see begin in verse 14. Uh, But actually, instead, he diverts to further explanation of what the mystery of the gospel is. You'll notice verse 1 and verse 14 both say, for this reason, they start out in the same manner, uh, meaning that what he's about to say is linked to what he just said. So Paul here in our text diverges into a further explanation of the wonderful mystery of uh, the gospel. Now, I pointed out at the beginning of our exposition that one of the themes you'll see through this passage is the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. He mentions it in the beginning of the book, the middle of the book here, and then again at the end of the book. The mystery of the gospel made known and revealed. And Paul here, to do that, gives them some insight into his own ministry that he has received from the Lord. And this scripture passage truly shows us the heart of the Apostle Paul and his commitment to the Lord's calling on his life. It also reveals to us the substance of this mystery, very plainly. No more mystery, but rather it is revealed. It is revealed to us as Christians. And this mystery, certainly as you'll find in this text, and as he's touched on briefly already, it concerns Christ as the centerpiece of it all and how it involves both Jews and Gentiles as the one people of God. Now, the mystery of this gospel that Paul expounds in this passage, it flows from verse 1 all the way down through verse 13. I was tempted to try to cram into this all 13 verses, but I began to realize as I study there's no way that's going to happen. So I believe it was best to put it into a two-part message. So let us take note of the gospel mystery and its great application for us as Christians. And to to understand this portion, we're going to look at Paul and specifically in relation to him and this mystery of the gospel. So notice in your notes this morning, number one, we see Paul's calling in the gospel mystery. Paul's calling in the gospel mystery. And Paul's calling here involves... Uh, suffering. It involves imprisonment. And and I'll point out here in verse 1, as we'll find, that he makes known to them that, firstly, he is a prisoner for Christ physically. He is physically in prison. He is a prisoner for Christ physically. Now, as we begin verse 1, Paul is connecting what he previously said in chapter 2, as we know that this all flows together, especially in the latter half of the chapter to what he's about to say. Because the latter half of Ephesians 2 really connects to what the mystery begins to unfold. We looked at Ephesians 2 very very plainly, very in-depth, how that God has made one people, Jew and Gentile in Christ. The barrier, the hostility, all that used to be there, by the cross, Jesus has what? He's abolished it. And so there is one people of God who are united together in Him. And as we come to this, we see that Paul pointed out to them in the latter part of this passage of Scripture, in verse 22 of chapter 2, that Jews and Gentiles together are one people who are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
They were living stones in a living temple of God. With Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, as verse 20 says. And so it is for this reason that Paul will say what he is about to say, and also for this reason he is enduring what he is enduring. Now, what exactly is Paul enduring personally here in his life? Verse 1 tells us, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, this is pretty plain to us who have read the New Testament and know about the life of the Apostle Paul. He was quite often in chains, wasn't he? He quite often was imprisoned. But you'll notice that Paul notes his imprisonment again in Ephesians 4.1. He says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He says it again in chapter 6 and verse 20, speaking of the mystery of the gospel again. He says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, Paul never shied away from making known his present situation. But he also did not want his circumstance to be the focal point for this church as he wrote to them. You'll notice how Paul just now mentions his imprisonment, whereas in many other letters he mentions it near the beginning. You see, Paul evidently did not want the Ephesians to worry about his own situation. He did not want his imprisonment to deter them from the glorious truths that he is expressing to them, especially in the opening to chapters. You remember how we come through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and and how rich and deep and glorious the, the redemptive plan of God is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have brought to pass for us? How marvelous it is. So understand that at the heart of the Apostle Paul is the care for the churches. He put the churches above himself and sought to make sure they were well cared for. You see, when Paul describes his variety of sufferings, if you go read 2 Corinthians 11, he describes how that he was beaten and he was left for dead and stoned and, and received stripes and, and imprisonments and, and was, was stuck out at sea for a certain amount of time. But you'll notice that there's one specific thing at the end of all his sufferings he describes that is heavy on his heart. And it's in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11. He says, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, I love the heart of the Apostle Paul here. He genuinely loved and cared for the churches. He understood how precious the Lord's church was. And may I say, Christian, that every single one of us ought to recognize how precious the church is. It is a jewel in this world. She is the bride of Christ. And so he here in prison, in chains, he's in chains, and yet it is not his own circumstance that dominates his thoughts, but that the Ephesians understand the glory of who they are in Christ. Now, there's a great lesson for us even here, that in our own times of suffering and trial. Our priority should always be the glory of God in it. See, you and I are going to go through some very trying times. That's part of the Christian life. And they come in a variety of ways. 
But did you know that through every form of suffering that we go through, the glory of God is always preeminent. Always preeminent. Now, we may not even immediately understand or see how God is going to get glory through something we go through. But bear this in mind that the Scripture says this, that all of the trials of our faith, they work out for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us this. Paul says about his suffering again. He says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And truly you gather from this that Paul, the reason he wasn't so concerned about his chains is, is that he knew that it was for the glory of God and for the good of his people, even the good of his own self. And when he says this, it ought to bring to our mind, he says it is a light, momentary affliction. And truly, this is the reality for all of us in suffering. You know why? Because it doesn't last forever. It does come to an end. It is only momentary, whatever it is that we go through. So Paul wanted the Ephesians here to focus on the glory of God in the gospel and and not necessarily his imprisonment. He wants them to know about it and why he's in prison, but he wants them to see the glory of God in the gospel, in this gospel mystery. But notice also that his imprisonment, not only was he a prisoner for Christ physically, I mean, his body is in a dungeon. He's got chains around his ankles and his hands. He's in prison. But you notice that he is, firstly... Also a prisoner for Christ spiritually. This is where his heart is. This is what he, what, why he's physically imprisoned. You'll notice that though Paul is imprisoned physically by Rome, he does not say, I am a prisoner of Caesar, does he? He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar. What does he say? He says, I am a prisoner to Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Jesus, the Lord, the King. I'm not the prisoner of Caesar. What a wonderful perspective and conviction that is. Now, now Paul didn't see his imprisonment as a result of the evils of Roman tyranny, although it was. He saw it as a result of being allegiant to Christ. And this truly is the reason that Paul's in prison, isn't it? He saw this as a result of being faithful to the Lord. Now, we look at this. Paul has been called by Christ unto salvation and has a calling from Christ. And when we look at Paul and his heart, his heart was to live for Christ no matter the cost. You recall that that Paul was so lost, so blinded, so condemned when he was Saul of Tarsus, wasn't he? But what happened to him? Jesus opened his eyes. He opened his heart. His heart had been closed. Christ opened it. His eyes had been blinded. Christ opened them. He opened Paul to see the depths of his sin and shame, and he saved him by his grace there on the road to Damascus. You see, Paul saw what Christ did for him as the motive for living unto Christ in his calling. I've always loved this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 and 15, if you'll note this with me. I love what Paul says here. 
He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was for their sake, died and and was raised. You see, Paul views it this way, that if Jesus so died for me, I must live for Him. I must live for Him. And that is not only the conviction to the Apostle Paul. Understand, Christian, this should be your own conviction. Not just for those who have have a calling to a life of ministry, but for every single one of you who profess faith. Every single one of us must live unto Christ must live unto Him because He died for you and rose for you and has saved you by His marvelous grace. So wherever and in whatever place we may be, Christian, your life is chiefly and firstly for the living Savior. But you'll notice specifically that Paul points out here in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says he is imprisoned On behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that's important. On behalf of you Gentiles. Now, how and why is that? Didn't the Jews initiate his imprisonment? Yes, they did. But why did did they do that? Because of Paul's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Not only to the Jews. You see, it was the preaching to the Gentiles which brought upon him the hatred of his own Jewish people and led them to accuse him before Roman governors leading to him being imprisoned. Now, it's no secret how much the Jewish leadership hated the gospel. You know why they hated the gospel? Because they hated Christ. They hated Christ. They thought he was an imposter. But Paul here is suffering imprisonment both for the gospel's sake and for the Gentiles' sake, because he's been commissioned to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 1.7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, suffering imprisonment did not come as a surprise to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul had insight not long after he got saved to the fact that he is going to suffer. Not that you might suffer, Paul, but Jesus flat out tells, uh, tells uh, of Paul's ministry in Acts 9.16, Jesus says of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, you imagine being told that before entering the ministry, how many would enter? I mean, I didn't want to enter the ministry just because I was afraid to preach. But if I was told ahead of time, you're going to enter and you're going to suffer. We hear of men that run from the calling of the Lord, right? But imagine being told ahead of time that you're going to suffer. And so Paul understood this, and you see his conviction for Christ anyway. And so knowing this, Paul understood that whatever suffering he endured, it was under the sovereign governing of the hand of Christ under his sovereign governing 
And with God's sovereign governing in his suffering, Paul knew that whether he was in prison or wasn't in prison, he was exactly where God wanted him to be. Exactly where he wanted him to be. And Christian, did you know the same is true for us? Paul is not the only Christian called to suffer for Christ's sake. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Now, we as Christians need to prepare to suffer. We don't go looking for it, but we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. The Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, why would the world hate a Christian? Because they fiercely hate Christ. And as we live for Christ, it invokes hatred. But understand that even in our suffering, our trials, and our receiving of mistreatment from the world, it is comforting to know this, that even in our suffering, we are under the sovereign governing of God's all-wise and all-loving hand. If you're in the midst of suffering, you're there because God has you there. If that's where God would have you, there's no other place to be better for you. Now, that's hard for us to reconcile. That's hard for us to understand. But what comforts me in any hardship that we endure is the sovereignty of God, that He's the one in control, and that all that He does in and through me is for His glory and for our good. Paul, Paul Gearhart said this, Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near with His cheer. Never will He leave me. Who can rob me of heaven? That God's Son for me won when His life was given. What a wonderful statement that is. You see, Paul's calling in this gospel mystery, he describes, involves being a prisoner for the sake of Christ and for the Gentiles. But notice with me number two this morning as we come on through the text. Notice Paul's comprehension of the gospel mystery. Paul's comprehension of the gospel mystery. And I'll point out two quick things here regarding this. Number one is this, that the mystery was revealed to Paul directly. Paul had direct knowledge of what this mystery was, of what God was doing. You see, it is Paul's understanding of this gospel mystery that enables him to continue in his calling and know the importance of his suffering. He wants the Ephesians to understand this, that he has had direct revelation from God about this gospel mystery and that he has been given a special mission regarding it. Now, notice in verse 2 he says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, notice specifically this word stewardship. What is this stewardship? This stewardship, the word used here, means responsibility of management. You you may have, some other translations may have it as dispensation. But but understand that that this, this word conveys the idea of someone who has been entrusted with the care and oversight of his master's estate. He's a steward of it. Now, I once worked for... Um, on a farm underneath the steward of someone who had oversight of the farm. The guy I reported to was the one who oversaw the farm. He wasn't the owner of the farm, but he oversaw it. 
he looked at the farm, he saw what needed to be done, and uh, he took note of that, and, and uh, where the grass was high, and what fence rows that need to be weeded, man, that's the jobs I got. Wished for some easier ones, but he was the steward, he was the one in charge. If you ever weeded a long fence row, you'll be glad when it's over with. <laughs> but anyway, the steward wasn't the owner, but he was trusted by the owner to oversee and fulfill the duties responsible around that farm. And we can see that same concept in a variety of ways in our world and in the workplace. You have managers and supervisors and different ones that report to others. But Paul, being a minister of the gospel, he was a steward of the gospel. So what he's saying is that Paul, God has entrusted him to be a steward of the gospel and seeing that it go out. He references himself in this way in a few other texts. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. See that same word. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he says of them. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Friend, if God has entrusted us to preach the gospel and we alter the gospel for some reason, we're being bad stewards. Bad stewards. Now, it's obvious that he is a steward of the gospel here, but Paul says in this text that he has been given the stewardship of God's grace. Now, what does it mean to be a steward of God's grace? Could, God, could Paul just impart grace to people? That's not what he's saying. Paul is speaking about a specific ministry of Grace, And you'll notice that this ministry of grace, look at the last part of this verse, has been given to him for you. Who's the you? It's the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles. You see, Paul had a specific calling that was unique to him in that day and time. He was to be the vessel that would cross over the Jewish boundary. And go out unto the heathen to preach the gospel to them. So that they would believe and take the gospel onward from themselves. Now he makes this clear by recalling his own Damascus Road experience. And I want you to turn there just to see it. In Acts 26, later we see his recalling this experience a few times in the book of Acts. But notice in verse chapter 26 this account. I just want to read part of it. But notice it it conveys this very truth of what he's called to do. In Acts 26 and verse 15 through 20, when the Lord struck him down and told him that it's hard for you to kick against the goes, in verse 15 he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why is he sending him to the Gentiles? Verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god that they may receive 
forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, this is who he's talking about, talking to, recalling his account, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul has been obedient to this calling that Jesus gave him directly. Paul's entire life has been dedicated to being a faithful steward of this ministry. And so you need, you'll notice as we continue in our text Ephesians 3 about this mystery that his ministry that he has is rooted in this mystery. He says he's given the stewardship of God's grace, given to him for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. By revelation. You see, this mystery was not like some of the cults in Ephesus who had certain mysterious ways about them, having cultic knowledge. This mystery is a truth that was concealed in the Old Testament but revealed in the New Testament. This mystery involves Christ. It involves the Jews. It involves the Gentiles. It it involves the whole of God's redemptive plan. And notice that Paul says he had direct knowledge of this mystery. How so? By revelation. Revelation. Now, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, although that is a revelation given to the Apostle John. But what does it mean? What does he mean by revelation? He means that Paul had direct word from God. Didn't go through anybody else, and Paul learned from somebody else, but rather, God spoke directly to Paul, illumining him of the truth of this mystery. Notice in Galatians 1.12 in your notes, he says of the gospel, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So you understand, you take the Damascus Road experience, for example, that's Jesus directly infiltrating the life of Paul and telling him exactly what Paul needed to know. And so you understand that the apostles and prophets, they had direct revelation from God, something you and I can't claim today. Now, why can't we claim direct revelation to God in the sense of having new divine messages? Because God has already completed His message. God has already completed His message. His full revelation to man is now in the pages of Scripture. You don't need anything outside of there. You understand that you hold the word of the living God, a complete canon, the revelation of God. This is what we call the specific or special revelation. This is a revealing of God's truth of Himself to mankind. And you and I have it all complete, pinned down on black ink and paper so that we know what God has said. But it came through men like Paul who pinned it down, who God used. You see, the written Word of God, it is fully sufficient and authoritative for all our faith and practice. As Paul wrote right later, In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
Paul makes clear that this gospel mystery concerning the Gentiles, he had direct revelation from it. And he was to be a steward of it. Now here's what I want you to understand by way of application in this, is that we must understand that as Christians, we also are stewards. We're stewards. We've been entrusted with something. Now we may not have the identical stewardship of Paul. Only Paul had that specific ministry. But did you know that all of us have been entrusted by God with ministry and with responsibility concerning the gospel in our Christian life? Understand, Christian, you're a steward of the gospel. If you know the gospel, you're a steward of it. You're to live it out in your life. You're to share it with others. You're a steward of your own Christian life. Nobody can live the Christian life for you. You have a responsibility to live it unto God in a pleasing manner. We as His people, we're stewards within our our own local church. We are stewards in our homes. We are stewards uh, uh, of our time, of our finances, of our health. Understand that stewardship is part of the Christian life. Stewardship has been given to God's people for the glory of God, and we must see our own responsibility in this matter. Now, Paul had a specific mission in his stewardship that God entrusted to him, that he wanted to do with all of his heart, with his own will. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 17, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Whether he wanted to or not, he was trusted to carry it out. May we do the same. But notice also, letter B, this morning, that the mystery is revealed not only to Paul directly, by direct revelation, but notice also it is revealed to Christians plainly. It's given to us. How, how, how is it that we know this? Just as I mentioned ago, in the word of the living God, the mystery's unfolded. It's already been given. Now, we may be wondering what exactly this gospel mystery is we keep referencing. We keep saying mystery, mystery, mystery. We know it has to do with the Jews and Gentiles and Christ, but notice verse 6 that Paul tells them in plain words exactly what the mystery is. Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery that wasn't known in the old time, but now is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. That passage is rich beyond measure. And we've already covered these truths extensively in chapter 2 because that's what he brings out is that chapter 2, he he fleshes this out that Jew and Gentile are one and now he's explaining that that's the mystery he's been talking about. That's the mystery of the gospel revealed. That long-time barrier of hostility between Jew and Gentile is abolished in Jesus Christ. You understand that the Jew is not superior to the Gentile nor is the Gentile superior to the Jew. If you are in Christ, you are on equal standing ground. There is no such thing as a difference. We don't don't make differences in Christians based on ethnicity or background or, or any other thing that we could think. There's one people in God. And it's those in Christ. And Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
So you see this glorious covenantal promise that was given through Abraham, it's not to the physical Jew only. It's to all those who are in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. You're partakers of that promise. There's only one people of God. They have the same standing, the same blessing, and the same future in Christ. And this truth, this truth we're talking about, it was a mystery in times past. The word for mystery here refers to the unmanifested or private counsel of God. You see, God, in throughout history, He did not reveal things plainly throughout history. Although it was there, it wasn't like, hey, I can connect the dots. He didn't give us like a manual. You know, you get a manual, you get a piece of furniture, take it home, and it says do this, 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 and you get the clear picture. It wasn't like that. When you look at the Old Testament, we find that there's some mysterious things that the New Testament sheds light on. The New Testament unfolds the Old Testament. And so the truths of this mystery were given to varying degrees in the Old Testament. The truths are there about Christ and about His redemptive plan for the world and about the Abrahamic covenant. But they were not immediately understood. Look at verse 4. Notice that he says of this mystery of Christ... It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was not clear how certain truths were going to play out. Especially the death of Christ prophesied and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to bless all families in the earth. Even when Jesus in His ministry, He tells His disciples here very shortly... I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and the third day I'm going to rise again. He tells that to them over and over, plain as day, right? But even with them hearing it, plain as day, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And why is that? Well, Luke 18, 34 sheds light on this. After Jesus just told them that very thing I told you, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's about like me telling you, I'm going to go to the store, and then I'll come right back, and you not understanding what I just said. It wasn't time for them to understand. It's not until after the resurrection that the light bulb goes off, and they understood what God was doing because God revealed it to them. And so with Christ's arrival and His accomplishment of redemption through His death, burial, and resurrection, it has unveiled the mystery. Ian Hamilton comments and says, The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ ushered in a new age of heightened blessing and more fully revealed truth. Shadow gave way to substance, type to antitype, and promise to fulfillment. We've been looking at that at Hebrews in Sunday school. Now, after the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, Paul says in verse 5, it has been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, in God's perfect time, He fulfilled His redemptive plan and revealed it fully to His people because it is for God to reveal truth, and He has done so. It is for God to reveal His truth. And there is so much glory in this revelation of the mystery of Christ. Paul touched on it, Ephesians 1, that we studied in verse 9 and 10, how, that he, how that, that he has made known the mystery of His will according to His purpose, how that in Christ He's reconciling all things to Himself on earth. 
We see a further insight of this mystery in Colossians 1.27. A parallel passage, he says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think of this, Christ in you, dwelling in His people by means of the Holy Spirit. See, this mystery of Christ is so deep and so wide, and yet God has brought revelation of it to us in the Holy Scriptures. And you'll notice that this mystery was not meant just for Paul, but he says in verse 4, and this is key, when you read this, when you read this letter he's writing, you can perceive my insight, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul, the one who has direct connection with God in Revelation, he says, I want you Ephesians to know exactly what I'm getting from God Himself. And here's a truth for us. How can you and I know the truth of God's working and will? I'll tell you how. Open your Bible and read it. You hear a lot of this today. Well, God spoke to me this. And I say, really, what's the chapter and verse? Well, God told me to do this. You understand that God speaks through His written Word. Now, there are times in which which the Spirit may prompt us to do something or lead us in our life, but as far as saying we've got a new message from God and God told me this, God told me to tell you this, we have to be a little cautious on how we perceive those sorts of things. We cannot expect to understand the deep things of God without reading the revelation of God. And what a great truth this is for us. Just as Paul wanted the Ephesians to read this letter and know this truth, catch this, we are reading this same letter nearly 2,000 years after it's written and knowing this same truth. Christian, this mystery that Paul pens should stir you, for you are blessed beyond measure by what this reveals. And have a glorious future in his inheritance. So we see Paul's comprehension of the gospel mystery. Notice with number three, and I'll be brief. We see Paul's character in the gospel mystery. His own character. We see some personal, how it personally affects him, where he designates glory and how he feels about it all. You'll notice, in, firstly, that he praises the power of God's grace in this mystery. The power of his grace. Because it's the power of God's grace that changed him. In verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, Paul Paul did not have this privileged ministry of his own will and doing. Paul did not decide, you know what, I'm going to be a minister to the Gentiles. Notice that Paul says, I was made a minister. He did not make himself a minister. He was made a minister. And that's one reason we understand that God's the one who calls men into the ministry. He was made this minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, to be able to serve the Lord in such a privileged calling, it was an unearned and undeserved blessing. It was according to grace. It was God's grace that called him to the service. And Paul knew that his salvation was by grace, and so was his service by grace. Paul had was chosen by the Almighty Sovereign, to this calling. And I'll read just by way of reference Galatians 1, 14 through 16. And you'll notice that Paul says, 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. What does Paul understand about his life and calling? God had set him apart before he was ever born so that he would not only be saved but also serve as a minister to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't looking for this ministry, but this ministry found him. The same thing applies to salvation. Man naturally is not looking for salvation, but when God's going to save someone, salvation finds them. You know, I recall my own calling into the ministry. I was 17 years old and had previously said out loud, I could never be a preacher. If you don't want to be a preacher, don't say that out loud. Why did I say that? Because I was shy and terrified of standing in front of people. And then at 17 years old came the call of God. A call so powerful, I could not shake or excuse it. I had no choice. I had no choice. I could have run for a little while longer, but you understand that God will always win in the end. And so by the power of His grace, He called me into the ministry to preach the gospel and to pastor His church. And little by little has grown me. Paul was struck down on that Damascus road and could only say one thing, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And so this ministry was given to Paul by the working of his power, as Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 1.25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, there's that word again, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so Paul, we understand, his ministry began in God's power and it continued in God's power. Because it's only by the power of God that any man can minister effectively. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, 5? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Understand this, church, that there is no such thing as mighty men in the ministry. There are only weak feeble, dependent men who must rest in the power of an almighty king. And Paul's character recognized this, and he gave glory to the Lord alone. And we as Christians must also recognize this. For all of us in Christ, we are here by grace, and we serve him by grace. Notice with me that Paul feels the weight of that privilege of serving King Jesus. But notice secondly, letter B, not only does he see the power of God's grace, but he bows in humility to God's grace. Look at verse 8 for a moment. He is deeply humbled by this. He says that I am the least of all the saints. And yet this gracious ministry was given to him. Now, we view Paul with high regard, don't we? We're thankful for him, but Paul did not view himself that way. He didn't view himself that way. He viewed himself as lower than all saints especially apostles, because of his past, because he had persecuted the church in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But he makes note of the difference and why he is used the way he is. He says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. He knew that apart from the God's grace, he could do nothing. That it was grace who brought him to this. And Christian, I want you to understand that the same is true for us. The reason that Christ died so horrifically on the cross and bore the wrath of God is because of our sin. It wasn't the Romans and the Sanhedrin that placed Christ on that cross. It was our rebellion and sin. God used them as the means to do it. And like Jacob of old, we too should say in humble, humble contrition, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Genesis 32.10 Though you and I deserve wrath, God in His mercy and grace has chosen to make you His own and to use you in this gospel ministry. We're not perfect people. and We ought not to expect to be, but we ought to recognize that any change in us is of grace. He's changing us, molding us, using us for His glory. And I'll close with this quote from John Newton, which I find so comforting and humbling. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the Apostle Paul recognized this very truth. Concerning this mystery of the gospel, he understands it's been given to him by the power of God but he is immensely humbled by the grace of God in this. Grace both empowers and humbles the Christian in their life and service. And so the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, it truly is fascinating. God has planned redemption and extended it to reach all the nations of the world, forming one unified people, you and I today. There's no distinction between us. None of us are better than each other. All of us are in Christ by grace alone. Let's stand to our feet as we close. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you. Thank you, Father, for this marvelous mystery of the gospel that you have planned and that you have revealed to your people. Thank you, Father, that you are sovereign over everything from the beginning of creation to the very end, that you have orchestrated and brought to pass the redemptive work that was required to save our sinful souls. Lord, may we as your people see the glory of this mystery revealed. May, Father, we be unified as one people, being humbled by your grace and know that we are empowered by your grace. May we glory in the cross and in the cross alone. And if there's one here today that is lost and undone and has not experienced this marvelous salvation, I pray, God, that you would convict and draw, their, draw them unto faith, that they would come to believe and know this glorious mystery as well. We pray it in Jesus' name.